Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everybody, this is Maria Maldar, and you're listening to Rock and Roll Archaeology on Pantheon Podcast. Pantheon Podcasts presents Deeper Digs in Rock, part of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. Music, culture, technology. And rock and roll. Now, on with the show. Can anybody find me somebody to love? Oh, that's you diggers. Christian Swain here, the rock and roll archaeologist coming to you from the San Francisco headquarters of Pantheon Podcasts once again. Shout out time. And really just the shout out goes to all of you uh, who tune in every week and listen to all our shows. Uh, we are growing and growing so quickly, uh, I, I don't know what to say. Uh, yeah, you know, tell a friend, but you're apparently doing that. So, we appreciate all of the um, the help that you guys do. Uh, whether it is uh, uh, just tuning in and listening every week, uh, listening to some of the newer shows, uh, sharing, telling a friend, um, leaving reviews, uh, and uh, and of course, uh, help on Patreon. If you're not a Patreon patron, uh, please check out our Patreon page to just help out with the you know overall head costs and getting uh, the network uh, in solid working order, you can go to patreon.com backslash rock and roll podcast singular. Okay. Plenty of news, but no new announcements except to say we had an incredible week and uh, hope to be able to share uh, some of this in the next few weeks. Just a lot going on. It's it's great. It's going to be fantastic. You guys are going to love it. Uh, so just keep tuning in and uh, just you know grow with us. Be a part of it. Uh, it is. It's it's the community of diggers. It is. Uh, it's all about you guys. Uh, and please uh, send us a line. Tell us uh, what you think. Give us suggestions. Uh, we may not get to it right away, but we definitely keep a file on that and look back on it from time to time. Okay. All right. This week's show is again uh, sponsored by CBD Vermont, which partners with Organic Farms in Vermont to produce organically grown hemp used in full spectrum extracts. Uh, available for sale at CBDVermont.com. Use the code DDIR to get 15% off all of their products. CBD Vermont guarantees their farms a price per plant and provide cultivation support throughout the growing season. 
Now, there are a lot of CBD products out there. So how do you know what you're getting? Well, CBD Vermont tests all of its extracts to ensure you are getting the right amount of CBD and other cannabinoids and no unwanted toxins. I mean, because who wants that, right? Plus, each batch is traced to the Vermont farm where it was grown and the hemp cultivar that was extracted. They've recently launched an online store where you can buy Vermont-made CBD products, including oils, capsules, edibles, and topicals. I know, I, I just ordered some more topicals that have been fully vetted by the staff at CBD Vermont. I'm telling you, it works. Uh, it worked for me, and it should work for you as well. Go to CBDVermont.com and please use the code DDIR at checkout to get 15% off your purchase. Okay, that is it for this week. Let's get to our guest. She got girls, girls all over the world. She got men every now and then. But you can't make up her mind. I'll just kind of fill her time. And the only way she can find. Today, we go back to school to continue our higher education in rock and roll with Associate Professor Evelyn McDonald. Currently, she is on staff at Loyola Marymount University in Los Angeles, where she is the director of journalism for the school. She has written several books, most notably Queens of Noise, The Real Story of the Runaways, Army of She, Icelandic, Iconoclastic, Irrepressible Bjork, and most recently Women Who Rock, Bessie to Beyonce, Girl Groups to Riot Girl, all of which we will get into today. Professor McDonald was born a California girl, but grew up in Beloit, Wisconsin, a smallish town in between Milwaukee and Chicago. Becoming a teenager and having plenty of music around the house, she fell in love with the outsiders of the day. You know, people like Iggy Pop, uh, Patti Smith, and bands like New Order and the Dead Kennedys. She was accepted into Brown University, uh, which uh, is kind of in between New York and Boston, so had touring bands coming through all the time. Her exposure grew exponentially, and she began writing articles for the local Providence rags uh, that then grew into pieces for Rolling Stone, Spin, Ms., The New York Times, and Billboard. In 1996, she was named music editor of The Village Voice. In 1995, her first book, Rock She Wrote, Women Write About Rock, Pop, and Rap, was released. And from 2001 through 2007, she was the pop culture writer for the Miami Herald, where in the end, she realized the publishing industry's disruption maybe wasn't where her best skills were suited. So she finally headed back to California, where she was awarded an Annenberg Fellowship to study in specialized journalism from USC. And getting her master's led to her current position at LMU as associate professor, where she teaches journalism and specializing in music, politics, and gender. 
So let's get down to it. I give you Professor Evelyn McDonald. You ain't nothing but a hound. Welcome to Deeper Digs in Rock, Evelyn McDonald. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thank you for inviting me to be on your show. Oh, we're really glad to have you. So you are an associate professor of journalism at Loyola Marymount University in Los Angeles, and your interest of study is the uh, conflagration of music, gender, and politics. So first question is, tell us what that means for you. Well, this is stems really from lifelong interest in music. Ever since I was a kid, I loved to listen to my parents' records and dance to them and try to sing along. <laughs> um, eventually, I realized that... Um, the trying part was where it would stay. Yes, exactly. <laughs> not my talent, um, nor actually was the dancing part of it. Um, uh, rhythmically challenged, are you? Well, you know, I just, I can't, if someone tells me to put my foot somewhere, I will put it the opposite direction. I just, I, I cannot be choreographed. Ah, uh, okay, <laughs> okay. The choreography well. Uh, so, but I did always love to write. Along with loving music, I liked to write. So I became a music journalist. I kind of just put, you know, one and one together and got two um, and became a rock critic, uh, music journalist, um, what have you, and pursued that career to, you know, to this day, which is now a few decades <laughs> since I started professionally. Yeah. Uh, so in, you know, in the process of that career and, you know, I've, written and edited for all kinds of publications. Yeah, I believe uh, the Rolling Stone magazine. I've seen some of your articles there, Village Voice, Los Angeles Times, uh, and there's many others. I was the pop music critic at the Miami Herald for eight years. Um, so uh, I found my way to academia somewhat late in my life and career or later, in, you know, sort of a mid-career change, shall we say. Oh, so you went from critic to academic. Yeah, I like to say I went from being a media-based scholar to a university-based scholar. Huh, which pays better. Mm, yeah, it <laughs> depends. Uh, or, well, okay, okay. I think part of it maybe is that you saw the disruption in the journalism trade. Absolutely, yeah. Okay. Yeah, and yeah, you know. I'm, and you said, uh-oh, this is not good. Right. I saw the disruption in, in media. Um, and and also, I was getting older and I had a child and wasn't necessarily committed to a life of being in the clubs five nights a week, which I think is pretty important to being a full-time music critic. Right. right. Um, you have to be out to see the live music. Yeah. yeah. So I didn't completely 
jump the track. I, I see it as a continuum. Uh, I just, you know, I used to edit and copy edit in addition to write. Now I teach and administrate. I actually direct our journalism program at, at LMU. And, I, you know, the other thing is that I've always been really interested in writing books. Uh, and I've you know been fortunate to be able to do that since pretty early in my career. Um, yeah, I think I think well, you now have seven under your belt, right? Yeah, yeah. So you know, and that also is a nice fit with with academia. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, throughout this whole time, I've also been very interested in the role that women have played in music and the way in which um, gender can inform music and the way that gender can also be an obstacle in careers, <laughs> which I unfortunately occasionally encountered in my own career. Um, so that kind of brought it all together, you know, but, I, but again, you know, even as a kid, my, you know, my, my parents were feminists and they raised me to, you know, believe that I could do whatever my brother did and to have as big of a record collection as he did. very nice (laughs) so where where did you grow up because i I know you've done most of your work on the coast so whether new york uh uh, or los angeles but uh are you i believe you're from the midwest right yeah i actually uh i grew up in wisconsin in a town called beloit uh which is a smallish uh college town on the illinois border so i was actually born in la though so i've done a full circle back to LA. It took four decades to do it. And I did, you know, cover the coasts and, the, and you know, Miami, the South to come back here. You had to work hard for it to become a, a, a Californian again. I did. I did. It was, it took me a while. Um, I'm glad to be back though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I hear that a lot from uh, people in between uh, the coasts and uh, or just even outside of California. I mean, it it, it is kind of paradise here. Uh, uh, I, I'm in San Francisco, if you didn't know. So um, I get it. I totally understand. So, uh, OK, so music, gender, politics, that is your uh, study of choice. Now, we believe the rock and roll era is mostly a story of America in the latter half of the 20th century. And for women, it's an arc from outsider not normally allowed to engage to more and more involvement. Do you agree with that? Well, yes and no. Um, although I would argue that a lot of the foundation is built on women. Uh, and that's some of the very early strains of rock and roll were laid by women, such as Sister Rosetta Tharp. I mean, I think... Yeah. Big Mama Thornton, Big uh, Mama people Thornton. like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Lady Bo Diddley... Um, you know, Wanda Jackson, yeah, Patsy Cline, even right. Mm-hmm. So, I think that a lot of the story of rock and roll is that women have always been there, they just haven't always been acknowledged sufficiently, or they've been um, not on equal par, yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um, or they've been considered like anomalies. And, and sometimes even just because they're women, they're put into, they're, they're called pop, even though there's not necessarily any difference between their music and what the men are doing. 
Right, right. You know, you mentioned Wanda Jackson. I kind of listened to her and, you know, she definitely, without a doubt, sounds like a, a rock and roll singer. Absolutely. You know, and one of the first, and this is in the 1950s. I mean, she is a contemporary of Elvis and Chuck Berry and uh, Buddy Holly and, and that whole first iteration of, uh, you know, what is considered the genesis of rock and roll, right? Right. But you never see her, you know. Uh, as... Included in that list that I just mentioned. Absolutely. No, she she's not. It just got posted online last week. There is a woman who is studying women in rock and roll in the 1950s as a scholar and she's unearthed a number of figures that have been overlooked and you know and part of it is like people's careers are overlooked or they're marginalized or they're you know categorized as pop and not made part of the rock and roll canon and then of course you know there's just that women's careers weren't supported at the same time and and you know they didn't have all the opportunities that Chuck Berry or Jerry Lee Lewis had there also wasn't the expectation of society. I mean, uh, and as you mentioned, uh, you know, just due to gender, uh, if there are children involved, then, you know, unfortunately, certainly back in the day, uh, maybe less so today, you know, the expectation was, well, you know, the woman's job was now in the home, right? Right, right. And certainly the 50s, of course, was a period of putting women back in the home and, you know, mm -hmm. the, the, the return of the housewife figure. Yeah. After Rosie the Riveter. Right, right, right. Uh, uh, we, we we need to stick this genie back in the bottle. Right, right. right. <laughs> Good luck with that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I, I think that's also part of what yeah. happened in that yeah. era. I think there's also a racial component as well. Some of the uh, precursors that we mentioned. Big Mama, uh, Sister Rosetta. Big Mama and so Sister Rosetta, exactly. Right. Um, were black artists. Right. Uh, and, uh, you know, were not given uh, the uh, same accolades as uh, white artists were. I think it's not really until Janice Joplin arrives that do, you know, women rockers finally get some sort of real media recognition. I think she ends up on the, the cover of uh, Time magazine and, and, and others that uh, that really says that moment may have arrived at that mo at that time. Right. 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 And the, the girl groups are case in point oh, yeah. of yeah. the way in which women get. Oh, that wasn't rock and roll. I, how was that not rock and roll? I, you know, I don't know because they were women and because a lot of them were black. So it was race music or it was pop. You know, I really think that and, you know, if you're writing the history of rock and roll now, this idea that like it went into some hibernation between Elvis and the Beatles, that's just not true. That's just a, a white male version of rock and roll history. Then. Well, from, from a white male uh, perspective, it did go into hibernation between Elvis, you know, after after Chuck Berry is uh, sent to jail, uh, Buddy Holly dies, Elvis is in the army, uh, Little Richard uh, is in the, the priesthood, you know, for a time. Uh, yeah, but the, the charts are filled uh, with a lot of Motown and a lot of those Motown groups are girl groups. Right. Right. Yeah. And they are they are ruling the pop charts at that time. And so, you know, as opposed to diluted white male versions of old rock and roll songs. Right. Right. But then, like, I mean, when, you know, men take over the charts again in the 60s with the British invasion, those guys just wanted to be, you know, Smokey Robinson and Darlene Love, you know? Yeah, they took all those uh, influences and included them in their version of rock and roll. Right. Even though it wasn't, you know, the women that were uh, actually uh, performing at that point, there still was this expectation of, oh, well, men should 
do it better. Uh, and and I guess it's not until we get into the later 60s that you see the rise of, well, Aretha Franklin, uh, I think uh, anybody would agree, once she gets into uh, Atlantic, begins to, you know, solidify herself as, uh, you know, a real rock star. I don't, I don't think there's any other way to put it uh, than that. And then, you know, as we discussed just a minute ago, Janis Joplin really just kind of uh, breaks the lid open uh, and things really start to change here at the latter end of the 60s. Right, right. Though I would, you know, still argue for the importance of the Supremes or, for, you know, the Ronettes. Yeah, who are ruling the charts. Yeah. Right. As having, yeah. you know, paved the way for Aretha and Janice and Grace Slick and. But it is it is an evolution uh, from, you know, especially culturally and, and the uh, allowance of uh, of women to gain greater and greater fame and be recognized for their contributions as we move closer uh, to our, our current uh, situation where now, let's face it, women rule all the pop charts. Uh, yes. Yeah. And of course, there's, you know, an important shift from the girl groups to. Um, Janice and Aretha in that um, Janice and Aretha were able to be themselves um, and, you know, they weren't prepackaged. They were, yeah. yeah, exactly. You know, yeah. and they in the assembly line like, uh, you know, uh, Motown is famous for. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So that's really important. And and uh, yes, women um, rule a lot of the charts, though, I have to say, when. You know, the year end, you know, top streaming artist lists come out. Men still rule that. So, Really? Even today? Mm-hmm. When you have people like Beyonce and Taylor Swift, Kayla, Katy Perry, Lady Gaga, uh, you know, pretty much anything they put out there, uh, you know, shoots to number one and, and stays there. It's still men who are uh, ruling the, uh, the year end list. Is that because most of those lists are written by men? Or compiled by men. These are just pure numbers of streaming of most streamed songs uh, and artists. So it's purely the numbers. And I believe that Ariana Grande is the only uh, exception to that. And, and it could even be like the top five, but, I mean, top 10, but at least the top five artists of 2018. It was, um, I think Ariana was the only woman on it. So it's pure numbers. And uh, I, you know, I mean, there's been some work done around the algorithms of Spotify that indicate that they uh, might skew toward male artists. So that could, you know, be part of it. You know, also, you know, most of the artists that you mentioned didn't have a big album in 2018. Mm -hmm. No, there's no Adele. There was no Beyonce. There was no, well, there was the, there was the Carters, there was, Beyonce and Jay-Z together. But, you know, Beyonce hasn't had the kind of chart numerical success for a while that she had. Um, I think, you know, the streaming is like young kids and young kids are listening to K-pop. Well, they are listening to K-pop, but uh, Drake. I think Drake was. Yeah, Drake is. Yeah, was the big one. But, well, he did something different, I think, than a a lot of artists. Um, You know, there's still this focus on the album. 
And I, I don't think we live in that world anymore. No. I think we, we are back to the world of singles. And uh, I think what Drake has done is, you know, just put out singles, uh, which allows him to uh, play the charts differently than other artists. I just think it's a, it's a question of economy and distribution and expectation uh, when it comes to that. Yeah. I mean, but of course, I mean, Beyonce is also, you know, I mean, I think Lemonade was just one of the greatest albums of all time. And, and then she you know, took that to the nth level mm. with the whole video. Uh, you know, it wasn't just an album. It wasn't. No, it was an entire media uh, extravaganza. Right, right. Right. But yeah, I am. I'm very curious about that world of SoundCloud and Spotify and um, how I am concerned that that's becoming gendered again in a way that's all too familiar um but disappointing really yeah yeah and your your study into it has been that the algorithms are skewed well there's a woman named liz pelly who's done some work on this um and i have not dug deeply into that but yes that is what she has found out um she writes for like pitchfork and um billboard and I mean, I am definitely not an expert on this. Uh, well, it is changing how people uh, consume their music. There's right. there's no doubt about that. There is no going back to, uh, you know, a, a tangible product or or even the download uh, anymore. It is it is all going to be streaming. That is the future of uh, of how people will digest their music. Right. Right. Then we have to just uh, be vigilant and call out those uh, egregious uh, instances when they occur. Yep. I will try to send you a link to some of her work. It's, yeah, yeah. Yeah. All right. So we now know you grew up in Wisconsin and uh, you at least had one brother who had a very large record collection <laughs> yes. uh, uh, and you had your own. So tell us how music infected you and took over your life, uh, which it has. Uh, I, I think there's no going back at this point. Um, so who who was the first artist that really spoke to you that you called your own? Wow. You know, it's funny. It, it was actually Michael Jackson. Um, it was, really? I know, which is so deep <laughs> at this point in time. Right. But it's always been. <laughs> you may um, you may want to revisit that. I, well, you know, it's very it's intense. It's a very uh yeah. Yeah. Uh, many layered uh, situation. Yeah. It's really the Jackson five. Okay. Um, okay. But but it was Michael in particular. Well, let's face it. He he was a once in a generation uh, talent. Uh, I'm of the opinion that we must separate the artist from you know and the art that is created from the the life they led uh i famously tell people my favorite uh, painter of all time is caravaggio and he killed people with swords so you know there you have it right right yeah i mean it's also hard because you know at some point his music was dealing with and you know negating the accusations or trying to negate them and um at one point you know it all becomes so entwined but during the age of the Jackson Five, he was still actually the victim, not the, the right. Either, right, right, <laughs> right, right. Um, yes, I, I believe you can hang your hat on that. Yes. Yeah, and and yes, certainly we can't just cancel that whole legacy. Though we do have to come to terms with, and you know, I think a lot of that is also coming to terms with our celebrity culture and what will let stars get away with. 
Uh, uh, I, I don't think it's just stars. I think it's just, you know, it's the age old uh, problem of, uh, you know, it, it's the golden rule. You know, <laughs> he with gold makes the rules. Right. Uh, and I mean, I think we see right. that on display every day now. Uh, it's just returning back to, uh, I, don't, I don't know, you know, uh, the divine right of kings. Yeah. Yeah. No, exactly. And just deliver your child to to the king. To I mean, yeah, oh yeah, and whatever you do with him is fine as long as we get some benefit from it. Uh, oh, patron of my poor existence. Right, right. But I mean, but I was like a kid who was obsessed. I idolatized Michael Jackson. Um, mm -hmm. So I completely relate to that in a lot of ways. And, and you know, he was the same age as I was, so there was also not that you know weird element going on. Yeah, and uh, the Jackson had a cartoon series. Is that where it started? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I used to watch that cartoon series. It was so great. Yeah, same here. Yeah, uh, and it was it was unusual for a set of black kids to uh, you know literally infiltrate uh, into the young minds of white kids. Right. Right. It was interesting, but it, they were so fun and normal, you know, in a way that, the you know, it was presented in the same way that the monkeys were. Right. And then it was funny because then it was actually going back to like the 1950s and, um, you know, the white appropriation of black pioneering. It, then the Osmonds came and had oh, yes, the, the exact same thing. Right. 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 <laughs> to compete against them. Yeah. For those who couldn't stomach those young black kids. I mean, I was, you know, a white kid in a small Midwestern town. And honestly, I knew that the Jackson 5 were black, but it really didn't matter at all to me. And I also knew that the Osmonds were nowhere near as interesting and, and as good. And oh, they were Pat Boone. Oh, they're terrible. Just terrible. I mean, it did not speak well for white people, but that was <laughs> that was the answer to the Jackson Five. <laughs> yeah. I mean. It's, <laughs> it's kind of like uh, Soviet culture going up against American freedoms, right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't think I would choose that. Uh, I get you, but uh, uh, okay. So Michael Jackson was the the first artist that you called your own, right? Right, and I had you know Jackson Five Greatest Hits album, and you know then I, I listened to music a lot. Uh, I was into you know my uh, my mother was really into musical theater, uh, so we would see a lot of shows, um, movies, whatever. So. I was into that, particularly the rock operas, like hair and uh, Jesus Christ superstars. Yeah, and, uh, things like yeah, that. yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and then the Beatles were the next act that I really asked. Now, of course, the Beatles were broken up by then. This was the seventies, uh, but I discovered them in retrospect. And oh, we we all did, yeah, yeah, right. I, I caught the very tail end of it. I, I, I remember uh, a conversation of people saying, oh, my God, the Beatles have broken up. Um, I don't remember much of them beforehand. Uh, I certainly don't remember February 9th, 1964. I was far too young for that. Um, but, uh, you know, I remember uh, Yellow Submarine was something that uh, caught my attention. But I definitely remember them breaking up. So, so okay, from the Jacksons to the Beatles, I mean, there's a, a gold mine to be had there. Right, right. Yeah, I just devoured the whole Beatles catalog slowly. Did it start with the blue and red greatest hits? Yes, the... it did. Ah, yeah, same here. Okay, I, I figured so. All right. It started with those and then... Yeah. And then we slowly, my parents had the white album. That was the only Beatles album they had, but they had the white album. 
Really interesting yeah, choice for, uh, for, it is. for you mentioned your mom was very big into musical theater. I would think right. maybe Sergeant Pepper or Magical Mystery Tour, perhaps, but uh, the White Album was interesting. Maybe that was just the moment that uh, that when they said, you know, we'll spend our money on this one. It's a good question why that album. And, you know, both of my parents were into music, not like super into music, but they were. You know, we definitely had a turntable in the living room, and that was a big part of what we did. So, you know, I became uh, eventually sort of John Lennon was the Beatles. Oh, you chose you chose Lennon over. Yeah, uh-huh. I, I did. I did. Um, I know where this is going now. Yeah, yeah. And then he, you know, and then he died. Oh, you remember that December eighth, nineteen eighty? Absolutely, I do. Yeah, 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 it was, yeah. It was very traumatic. And then it was really. Uh, I discovered punk rock. I mean, punk rock happened actually. Basically, you know, punk happened, and I just discovered Patti Smith and The Clash. So that was the genre that first really spoke to you. Yeah. That was your own. That you said, Mom, I'm cutting my hair, dyeing it, and I'm getting a bunch of safety pins. <laughs> Basically. I was, oh, How did your parents take that? The first and only punk rocker in Beloit, Wisconsin. You were. You were the, the one and only uh, with your own uh, fanzine, huh? Uh, I did not have a fanzine at that age. Um, fanzine culture hadn't penetrated to below it at that point at that point but i did have a little ripped up t-shirt that i made and and wore and i did dye my hair purple for my graduation so now why isn't that on your website <laughs> actually it didn't come out very well it turns out that my hair doesn't take dye very well was oh. what i discovered from that which was probably a relief for my parents <laughs> All right. So punk rock is the the way forward. And is that part of what makes you leave to go and find some good punk rock, Uh, leave Beloit and maybe go and look for it elsewhere? Yeah. You know, I mean, I just, you know, wanted to get out of Beloit probably anyways, not not to put down Beloit because I still actually have a lot of friends there. And I really value that experience I had growing up in the Midwest and I do not consider it the flyover. Um, and I think, uh, you know, our country suffers by the divisions and people not understanding different regions of the country, but you know, it was a small town and there was only so many opportunities and yeah, I left for college. You know, basically I went away for college. I always, I went to college, but I really spent most of my time, um, at clubs, seeing bands because that was not something I could really do in Beloit. There wasn't a lot of that going on there. Huh? No, I mean, there were. There were local bands, and I did see them sometimes, and concerts would come through. But I went to college in Providence, Rhode Island, and that was great because basically bands going to Boston and New York stopped in Providence. So pretty much everybody came through, and you also got to see them in a smaller venue than in Boston or New York, right? Yeah, right. yeah. Oh, very cool. Yeah, that's right. You went to Brown University, right? Yeah. And good Ivy League education. I got my good Ivy League education. I got my pe- I got my safety, safety pins and dyed hair and all. I mean, of course, I was not the only punk rocker in Brown or Providence, which right. was, you know. A you re- found your people. It was a relief to me, but I also didn't necessarily fit in there either, which is why I, you know, I never went to campus parties. I just went to go see bands pretty much. <laughs> So what's the first band that you saw there that just lit your world on fire? Well, actually, one of the bands that came to campus my first year was Gang of Four. Oh, okay. All right. So early 80s. Yeah, which, well, I already knew Gang, you know, I was already a fan of theirs. So I was... A little more new wave than punkish, but yeah. Well, 
yeah. Uh, you know, but so smart. Like, God, I still love those songs and such great rhythm. It's, it's so funny because I just in April was at a conference and I got to meet two of them. They were there. So, yeah, it's funny how things come around. <laughs> um, I saw so many bands back there and and i was oh i mean yeah i mean going to providence i mean it makes perfect sense that every band going from uh, new york to uh especially the english bands going from new york to uh to boston would uh, make a stop in the uh in the college town there right right and you know it was also i mean the other thing that was happening was you know was the birth of hip-hop so i also you know i went to one of the first fresh fest festivals and you know saw Curtis Blow and, you know, saw... Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. That's so, very early. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So that was also happening. At Brown, actually, we, there was like a funk night every Thursday night. And that was the one campus thing I did go to, you know, at the campus pub and everybody would dance. So you graduate and you move into rock journalism. And uh, this is uh, the late 80s, right? Yep. What was your first job? Uh, well, I actually started writing for a newspaper called The New Paper, uh, which was an alternative weekly in Providence. I started writing for them while I was still in college a little bit. That was my first paid gig. And so I kept doing that after I graduated. And I basically hung out in Providence for two years because I had that regular outlet that I could write for and get clips and get experience, you know, interview people. (laughs) And I also uh, was working as a freelance copy editor at the Providence Journal. And then I was like, you know, working in a club, booking bands and working at a record store and just sort of living the life of a music obsessed person. (laughs) Basically, a music uh, trying trying to make a career out of it. Yeah, uh, how to how to get paid with your passion, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and you know, it wasn't like there was uh, great opportunities to earn a lot of money, but there was opportunities to earn a little bit, and I didn't need a lot. You know, rents were low, it was Providence, and I didn't have aspirations of a highfalutin lifestyle. I was happy to wear in thrift store clothes and, you know, (laughs) drive a beautiful car um, for it to be, you know, because I love the music. Right. You live for the music. right? Yeah. And I got to go to shows for free and I got free records. Yeah. You had a, you had a media pass, right? So my habit was, was taken care of. Yeah. (laughs) Your habit. Yeah. 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 That's very nice. And uh, when did you leave Providence and move to the big town? After two years after I graduated from college. Uh, Mm -hmm. So it was like uh, 88. I moved to New York and pretty immediately started freelancing for Billboard and the Village Voice and Rolling Stone and Cream and New York Newsday option. So you started freelancing for these various larger uh, outlets um, um, like uh, Billboard. Were you writing for Rolling Stone at this point? I started around then. I'd actually, um, even when I was in college, I had gotten an assignment for Rolling Stone, but then I didn't, couldn't get the interview. Was that always the mecca for you? Yes. That's always what, you know, I... I you, yeah, you aspired for is... Absolutely. Uh, that yeah, was yeah, the major yeah. outlet for music criticism that as far as I knew or cared... I mean, you know, what I found out was that the Village Voice was actually really where music criticism was being defined and refined and became the outlet. 
Um, but the voice, it was a more street level, uh, yeah, and, it was... uh and, and a, a little ahead of, uh, of the public where as, uh, you know, Rolling Stone is commenting on the, the heights of, uh, whatever is happening. Right. And, and you couldn't get village, the village voice on most newsstands and you couldn't get it sent to your home. Right. I mean, it was, it was a regional publication. Yeah. Although, although my brother did used to go to the library and read it in Blake, Wisconsin. So I'd make it out to there to, to check on Sis's byline. No, no, this was uh, before, long before I was writing for it. Uh, oh, okay. just right. I think to um, partly to follow their music coverage. He did know my brother. You know, I did have like the big brother who was ahead of me in all this. Um, yeah, you, you got the hand me downs uh, until you started to make your own. Yes, exactly. Right. I get you. I get you. So then I believe you went to uh, to Miami to be the music critic for the Miami Herald, right? Yeah. 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 In uh, 2001, actually. So I spent a good dozen years uh, in New York writing, editing, going to a lot of shows, um, having a great time. And uh, then I got hired, you know, really for like a dream job to be a full time music critic for a major newspaper. Yeah. In yeah. a town that had a, you know, really unique Music. Vibrant music scene, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Although I have mm -hmm. to say the live music scene was not great in Miami. It was much more of a, of a club culture there, yeah. um, which was interesting and exciting too, um, though the older I got <laughs> and the more I, uh, children I had, that became harder. To hit the club scenes all the time. Yeah, and you know <laughs> – and also the time you said in 2001. So that that is at the beginning of the media disruption. I yeah. mean, I'm sure you didn't see it as you took the job, but it probably wasn't long afterwards that you began to notice things weren't going well. Yeah, no. And, and actually, it was funny because I got offered the job. And then like three hours later, they called me back and said, you're not going to believe this. But we just got hit with a hiring freeze. We can't actually hire you yet until freezes. <laughs> so which like, so it actually took them a few months to actually hire me. It was pretty crazy. So you really, you really did make yeah. it under the wire then. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. And yeah, certainly the whole time I was at the Herald, there were layoffs and, you know, buyouts and everything. Yeah. Yeah. But you made it there for eight years. I did. I did. And then, uh, is that when you decided to pack it in and, go to academia? Well, at first I left to edit a website, actually a social media company that was a competitor to Facebook and, you know, obviously lost <laughs> that competition. <laughs> Needs uh, to say. <laughs> wait, uh, so, oh, oh, really? Uh, well, yes, there, there is a one and only Facebook now, but I, I take it it's not MySpace. No, no, okay. it, it was, uh, um, it was, a, it was called Moly, M-O-L-I, and they were, you know, saw the MySpace example and built on it and, you know, it was literally around the same time as Facebook was coming out of Harvard. Yeah. And actually, you know, some of the new controls that Facebook is trying to put in, in terms of privacy controls and having different kinds of accounts, that was Moly's vision. So it's interesting that some of that's come back around. But Moly also had this weird idea of, of curated content for the social media users, which is kind of a kind of a Yahoo meets Facebook model. Um, and I was in charge of that content. So, you know, I saw the writing on the cyberspace or whatever. Uh, and <laughs> Very quickly. Now, is this your first job not 
directly associated with music? Uh, yeah. Poor decision there, Evelyn. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I do think that, I mean. The muse, the muse only works one way. And, yeah. Uh, I, sounds like she wasn't very happy uh, with you. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I lasted there only a couple of years. Um, well, and the company only lasted like a year after that. So, um, but I mean, you know, it was a good experience to be like, okay, I worked at a startup. Like, um, that was the thing that you did. And and I actually will say that it helped me get my academic job, that I had some kind of experience in the digital world. Really? Really? It, absolutely. So, uh, so you leave there. Um, is that when you went back to grad school? Yes. So it's like, and that's that's what got you to California because I know you went to USC. Yeah, yeah, I got a fellowship. I got an Annenberg fellowship um, to study arts journalism at USC. Now this is after I've been practicing art journalism for two decades, but the program was actually set up for mid-career professionals to sort of retool, mm -hmm. uh, which is uh, you know what that's I did. Great. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Great. Yeah. No, it worked out great. It was a wonderful program. Um, and I also started writing what became my book, Queens of Noise, the real story of the runaways as my master's thesis. So let's talk about Queens of Noise, the real story of the runaways. Um, so why and how did you come to write the book? Um I had been a fan of, you know, Joan Jett's since I was in high school and had interviewed her uh, a few times in my career, including once for Rolling Stone, and had kind of gotten to know her um, a little bit because I lived in New York and she lived in New York and I would literally run into her at shows because she's mm -hmm. way cool like that, right? <laughs> she would <laughs> yes. go see like Bikini Kill or, you know, whoever mm -hmm. in like a small club and there would be Joan Jett. Yeah. And had bandied the idea of, you know, writing a book about her with her and realized that she was not ready for that. Um, but I felt like the story of the runaways was this incredibly rich story, kind of a, you know, microcosm parable of the possibilities and the perils of being a woman in rock and roll. Yeah. And at the time that I, you know, started working on that, it was not a very well-known story, you know, and then the Runaways movie came out while I was working on this. So, Oh, how did you take that? Uh, well, I was like, you know, I wish my timing had been a little different. <laughs> yeah. Damn it. Uh, I've just been a couple of years earlier. They could have used this as the uh, template for the movie, right? Yeah. Yeah. But um, options and all of that. But right, uh, right. But I mean, in some ways, it, you know, it, did create more of a market for my book in the sense that, that is true. who the runaways were. And, you know, when I was able to fill in a lot of gaps that were not presented in that film, although I very much liked that film and actually the director Polaris Sigismondi actually helped me in, in my research very early on. Um, my thesis actually focused on Sandy West, who was the drummer for the runaways. Right. Um, who's a very incredibly interesting person, but also a very tragic story. And that thesis was published as the cover of the LA Weekly the week that the movie came out. So in some ways, I did I get get something out of that movie coming out. Um, I published my first piece of the book, which I think did create interest in the book as a whole. 
and you know, and I think I mean I think it did help me get a contract that people knew who the runaways were and also that yeah because it was in the zeitgeist and uh that yeah. certainly helped right and uh and you had already begun the research and uh were, right. were deep into the telling of the tale so what what surprised you most uh about the runaways what did, what what was the biggest thing that you took away from the story um i think that that these were these actually very talented teenage girls who you know just loved rock and roll like so many of us did and how that shouldn't have seemed unusual <laughs> um or problematic you know this is the 1970s right but the fact was that there hadn't been any really successful all-female bands where self-contained right yeah like, self-contained yeah. played their you know own instruments. yeah played their own instruments wrote their own songs mostly right uh and there had been attempts before um not too long ago i interviewed the ace of cups right uh, out of the 1960s uh san francisco scene uh they were one but they didn't uh, get the record contract. Uh, there was Fanny right. in the early seventies, right. um, and uh, while while they got a little bit further, they also didn't get the um, the recognition that they deserved. Right, right, absolutely. So you know, yes, and and there was Goldie and the Gingerbreads, and you know, yeah, Goldie and the Gingerbreads, yeah, and yeah, it's not until the Runaways which kind of is the first that begins to kick the door open because after that, you know, you, you in the punk rock scene, you do have like the slits and other, a lot of other female bands that start to bubble to the surface. Right. 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 And, you know, and, and not that the runaways were hugely successful, but they did travel the world. Um, they did, they did have a multi uh, album deal. Right. Uh, you know, they had the record company behind them. Right. There was attempts to turn them into a, a big act. It was, it was a, a serious endeavor. Yeah, exactly. Albeit, you know, complicated by, you know, the way they were presented as jailbait and, you know, uh, <laughs> yeah. like just yeah. the crap that they had to deal with as like young women was really horrific. But and of course, you know, Joan Jett went on to have a hugely successful career. So we also probably wouldn't be as interested in and Lita Ford. Right. Yeah. They, they proved their worth by those two. Uh, and especially Joan, let's face right. it, she's a Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductee. She's a, a legend going on to such success. Right. Right. Yeah. So um, the the bands put together by Kim Fowley uh, as as kind of a, a theme to do this exact thing. Right. Yeah. You know, and, and you know, Kim Fowley, like, you know, such a complicated character. <laughs> We've um, already hit on one. Why not go for another? <laughs> God. Um, I mean, he did have this vision, you know, he saw these young girls in the nightclubs and he said, why can't they be on stage? Right. Yeah. There was certainly something exploitative about his idea, but I would say that, uh, he also wanted to give them a kind of power and agency. And for every, you know, horrible thing he did, he also, you know, saw the promise of Joan Jett and, you know, gave these girls a platform and gave them an independence and sexually assaulted at least one of them, a yeah. couple of them. So, you know, just that, that story just encapsulated everything great and horrific about rock and roll and women. Yeah, they they kind of are the the linchpin before before and after. Right. 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 And well, and then, you know, and then punk does come along. Yeah, they're not really punk. They're 
right. kind of arena rock uh, type of. Yeah, uh, they were more like hard rock. I mean, they yeah. were pre-punk, you know, and Joan, Joan became very punk. Yeah. And even Lita, you know, thinks of punk as an influence on her, although she's much more of a metal person. Um, I think that they saw in punk. Freedom. Yeah. A way, th- a way through. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, and, you know, and they yeah. did. It was part of the, the punk uh, aesthetic was that you, you know, uh, everybody, uh, at least the early part of it was, you know, these were the most marginalized kids. Therefore, everybody's welcome. Right. Right. And women included. Yes, included. And, yeah. and they did. You know, they hung out with the Six Pistols and they did fire Kim Fowley. Like, that's the part of the story that tends to get forgotten, that they did try to overthrow him. You know, they did try to c- come out from under that influence. Yeah, uh, from under the thumb. Yes. That's what I say. Yes. yes. Uh, <laughs> well put. Well put. Uh, yeah, and they continue to uh, garner uh, certainly uh, influence uh, to aspiring young women uh, rockers, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. Yeah. Including yeah, you know, yeah. the Riot Girl movement. You know. Yeah. 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 In fact, I, there, there's probably a direct line from the Riot Girl movement to the Runaways, wouldn't you say? Uh, yeah. So the Runaways were definitely a huge influence on the Riot Girl movement. You know, Bratmobile covered Cherry Bomb. Uh, Joan Jett produced Burkini Kill. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and I always think that um, Joan saw in Riot Girl the possibility of what could have happened for, for the Runaways, right? Yeah. Yeah. So they definitely deserve uh, all the accolades that they are now uh, uh, achieving. I mean, it's not, you know, in some ways you you can compare them to to the Ramones. You know, everybody thinks of the Ramones of like, you know, all oh, these huge uh, punk uh, uh, stars that and, and they they could barely get gigs back in the day. Right. Uh, it, it's not until afterwards does the mythology uh, you know, uh, put their standing much higher than the reality of their existence. Right, right, and and the Ramones and the Runaways toured. Rightly together. so, rightly so. Don't get me wrong. Rightly right. so, but right. but it, it it's a shame that they did not get to uh, uh, enjoy the fruits of their labor at the time. Right. Well, Deborah yeah, Harry, I... went, Deborah Harry once told me that she was you know more famous than she was successful. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. Yeah, uh, well, you know, it, it's a it's a it's a lot of the compact uh, when it comes to music. Um, you know, uh, let's face it, the music business is not exactly the most above board uh, business to get into in the first place, okay. uh, and and the trade off is you know fame for for money. Uh, you know, you get the fame, and the record guys get the money. Right. Exactly. You know, so, so I, I'd love to see that dynamic change. And I, and I think we live in a world, given uh, the advent of social media in a positive sense, uh, streaming uh, services, uh, it's very easy to now, you know, be your own, uh, your, your own person or your own band uh, and not necessarily need a record company. I mean, there's no need for distribution, which, you know, was the only way to go about it in the, back in the day with a tangible product that was needed to be put on shelves. You don't have that anymore. Uh, you can, you know, find uh, all the marketing uh, that you need uh, that the other side that the record company did for you, uh, if you're savvy enough and can hire the right people to just do it yourself. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. 
So I'd love to see more of that uh, than uh, the need for a quote unquote record uh, business, which, you know, has stomped on uh, too many uh, people to, to even begin to mention in, in, in this podcast. Right, right. So another subject you took your pen to was the Icelandic superstar in Army of She, Icelandic iconoclast, uh, iconoclastic uh, irrepressible Bjork. Why her? Oh, yeah. Um, I just love Bjork's music. First of all, uh, the album Homogenic made me a thorough convert. Still one of my favorite albums of all times. Um, and I interviewed her for that album. It's the first time I interviewed her. I actually went to Iceland, to Reykjavik. Oh, nice. Yeah. You got an Icelandic trip out of it. I know. I know. Those, <laughs> those were the days. Um, I enjoyed talking to her so much and she had this reputation of being this sort of quirky, odd person, which, you know, she is, <laughs> she's definitely not your run of the mill human being. Um, but she is also just very, very smart and innovative and, she, you know, it's, it, she's not quirky because quirks are make it sound like there's just like odd tangents like she's just she has real ideas that she's following and pursuing so i just felt very compelled by her and you know i actually like that she is a, really a post-rock artist you know she, she well she you know cut her teeth on punk rock also um but then she really came on her own in the digital age and when she emerged as a solo artist out of the sugar cubes she was you know flowing out of trip hop and she's always been so musically experimental and you know not dependent on any genre and then you know her obviously her visual sense her videos um yeah i really think that i mean i think she's a genius i really do and so much emotion and feeling in her music so yeah, to this day, I think she's just an incredible artist. So when does she get in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? Yeah, that is a very good question, right? <laughs> I think that was a big question this year uh, because Stevie Nicks is the first um, female artist to be inducted twice. Yes. Uh, once with Fleetwood Mac and then for her solo work, which is what she was inducted for this year. Uh, the one and only. That yep. seems kind of sexist to me. Right. Well, you know, I wrote a big story about this, and I don't know if you saw that, uh, for long reads called The Manhandling of Musical History. And I crunched the numbers, and out of the, oh, I forget the exact number, over 700 members of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, people who've been inducted, fewer than 8% are women. Fewer than 8%? That's less that are in Congress. I, I was so shocked. And I had actually crunched the numbers a few years ago. Uh, for another article, so this sort of seems to be one of my beats. And at that time, I counted it differently. I just counted the number of acts. So I didn't count every, because, you know, when a band gets inducted, every member of that band gets inducted, including, you know, if they've gone through like 20 members, you know, yeah, uh, yeah. most of those members will get inducted as well. So when I just counted it, not by each of the not counting all the members of the bands, it was like 14%, which was still really bad. Uh, but when I counted it, it now, just really counting every individual member, because it's, that's actually a, a more important measurement in the sense that those members are also the voters, right? So yeah. 
So it's a self-perpetuating system. Um, yeah, fewer than, and you know, and you cannot tell me that fewer than 8% of the important artists of the last 50 years or since World War II, or whatever you want to call the rock era, that fewer than 8% of them have been women. You make a very good case there, Professor. <laughs> and so, and you know, a lot of it is how they're defining rock and roll. So yeah, why is Def Leppard in um, Bon Jovi? Yeah. <laughs> and Bjork is not. I mean, and Bjork, or how about Carol King? She's not in there. She, uh, no, she's in there as a songwriter. This is yeah. like, I mean, it's just so insane. She's in there as a songwriter. Jared Joffin, not as her own. Tina Turner is in there. Yeah, Tina Turner with Ike. There. She's yeah. in there with Ike, not on her own. Her, her own, her own abuser. Right? It's just vile. It's yeah. vile, and I make some ideas of things that they could change. But I, I do worry that the whole institution is just rotten to its core. Are you a member of the Rock and Roll? You mean, do I vote? Yes. I do vote. Yeah. Okay. You know, and but and honestly, they only asked me to vote a few years ago. And I'm like, you know, I've been doing this for uh, about 30 years. So thanks for finally asking me. <laughs> Which, I mean, it also just tells you that they're just. It sounds like you're throwing shade at them, uh, Professor. I, you know, my account, it's not personal. Um, <laughs> uh, I mean, I guess it is in the sense that I haven't, you know, I went to the opening. I believe in it in the beginning, even though. The first class had no women in them. The very yeah. first class of inductees, there were no women. It just <sighs> don't get me started. <laughs> well, we we destroy the patriarchy uh, one brick at a time. Yeah. So I mean, I I suggest that they have just all female ballots for a few years to try to even out the numbers. You know, bring it up <laughs> to at least double digits. Could we have double digits at least percentage? Yes. Yes, at least 10. Right, right, right. All right, let's discuss your newest book, Women Who Rock, uh, Bessie to Beyonce, Girl Groups to Riot Girl, a celebration of 104 of the most important and influential women in rock and roll history. Now, I believe this is a, a joint affair that you led with other women writers. Is that correct? Right, yes. Yeah. So this is a, a, a collection of original essays and original illustrations um, about – a century's worth of great musicians, uh, all female, female identified, um, and all the writers and all of the illustrators also are women. There's over 30 writers, there's six illustrators, um, and it begins with uh, Bessie Smith, and it goes up to um, Brittany Howard from um, Alabama Shakes, mm-hmm. and covers a lot of ground in between, um, a lot of these are people who are not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, but perhaps. <laughs> I think we've already established that. <laughs> um, so it's maybe an alternative to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. That's not what it was created for, um, but I certainly think it can stand as that. I mean, and certainly, yes, the idea was that there is a history and a lineage and a body of work here that isn't always acknowledged. Um, and that there are shared experiences and, and stories that can be gleaned and that, you know, you can see the connections between one artist to the other. Yes. Right, right. Uh, yeah. 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 The, the, the lines that took uh, the influence uh, of a particular artist back to, uh, to one in the past. Right. Right. 
And then, you know, they're short essays that could easily just, you know, read one a day. Um, but every writer had to feel passionately about the subject that they were writing about. So they're really, you know, persuasive pieces of, of why, why these artists matter. Well, uh, taking uh, our conversation on the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and because we have brought up uh, uh, the legendary Joan Jett, um, I remember it's a campaign. Uh, and I watched her campaign uh, closely mm -hmm. um, from, you know, probably around the movie um, really kind of gave uh, impetus for uh, her and her manager, co-writer, everything to her, Kenny Laguna, to kind of um, begin the process of uh, getting the, the name out there and uh, the need for her uh, inclusion into it. And it is, it, it, it's very much like a, a political uh, campaign in, in just about anything. And a book like this can certainly help many other uh, potential uh, inductees to make that case. I hope so. I hope so. So how did you narrow down the list to 104? Right. Yeah. That, you know, that was definitely well, interesting number to begin with. Uh, but why, why that number? And, and how did you get to that? Right. Yeah. Well, we were trying to keep it below a hundred and then, you know, <laughs> just, you, you, you obviously failed. <laughs> yeah, we did. I mean, it just became too painful. Um, and, and there were still so many painful omissions. It's not every woman who rocks it's 104, that we think, you know, represent a range of eras, genres, um, life stories. Uh, you know, we wanted both those who were well known and um, some that were not, right? Because I think that that's an important part of the story is the way in which women artists can sometimes not be given the, the careers and the respect that they deserve. Yeah, which has come up uh, several times in, uh, in this discussion. Right. Uh, Madonna's in there. Uh, there is also um, Ana Tijoux, uh, who is a Chilean rapper uh, that probably most of your listeners haven't heard of, but who's extremely. I, I was just going to say, you got me there. Even I don't know that name. Yeah, you know, so, um, but who's, you know, very talented and in Chile is well known and in parts of Latin America. Um, and also trying to expand the concept of what rock is, because I think that, you know, this. Like, well, as we talked about earlier, this notion that it's, you know, defined by guys with guitars, you know, maybe particularly white guys with guitars. Um, that's a, a very particular notion of the music history of the last 60 years or 100 years. Well, shouldn't we maybe have a, a better definition or a different name for it? I mean, um, to me, hip hop, while a lot of it is being included in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, I, I feel like that's just a co-option. Um, by an older art form trying to retain its relevancy. Um, I see hip-hop as a, as a completely different art form, and it should be celebrated as such. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think that the problem is that, you know, I mean, really it's all just music, right? And, you know, and the problem is that the history of music in this country is often defined by race and by color, and you had race charts, and, and sometimes the difference between the musics on the charts is really just about skin color, right? Yeah. And you see that right now with the whole thing with, you know, Little Nas X and the country charts, you know, where Old Town Road gets taken off the country charts. It's just because he's black, right, right. You know, 
because the name is Little Nas X. Uh, these so you're calling the country charts racist? Absolutely, and sexist for sure. You know. Well, it is the country charts. Yeah, yeah. you know it's. Unfortunately, uh, you know, we thought out of the 60s, we were moving towards a more inclusive society. Right. And think um, maybe the last couple of years, um, the veneer has been ripped off and the underbelly exposed. Yep. And and this sort of thing, geez, I mean, would you agree that we are kind of at a crossroads um, here in politics, culture, gender, and music? I Yeah. I think we could be. There's only two paths to go, either building that more perfect union or some sort of fantasy old time era that never really existed. I, I, that's that's to me what the choices are. Right. Right. Well, and if you look at, you know, what which the, is really just a, about subjugation. Right. And a return to, yeah, a time that was great for certain people, but not for others. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, purposefully. Right. Uh, right, which is weird in in the concept uh, in and of itself, but I, I'm not sure that you can actually do that. I, and I, I hate to use this metaphor again, but putting the genie back in the bottle, I just don't see that being possible. I think a whole lot of people may have to die to to prove the point, uh, which has happened many times in history. But there is no going backwards to anything in at, at all in in life. There's only forward momentum. I hope. Um, and I hope it doesn't take a lot of people dying. But, you know, it's like we're fighting the Civil War again. You know, it's, we're on. the Well, that's because we didn't uh, completely end it in the first place. Yeah. Uh, I think that's uh, part of the problem. Um, yeah. uh, not not to delve too much into the racial politics in this country. But, you know, the fact is, is that, yeah, we, we had a big civil war. Six hundred and fifty thousand people were were killed uh, to determine that uh, African-Americans are not slaves and that they deserve uh, a place in this country, just like uh, any other uh, land of immigrants does. And then we spent 100 years basically allowing a portion of this country to say no. Right. And in the last 60 years, we've tried to say yes. And and now people are saying no again. <laughs> right. How? So when do we shut those people up? When do they just die? I'm not sure how familiar you are with the concept of the lost cause and why it all came about the way it did. But to allow those people to have a voice of lunacy, of um, irrationality, whatever the cause is, it's, it's as akin to giving the microphone to the village idiot. Right. And I don't understand why we allow that to happen. Wait, did we just start talking about Kid Rock? <laughs> <laughs> Amongst others. <laughs> uh, obviously, you're not a fan. Uh, so, okay, without delving too far into that, where do you think we are in 20 years? And we'll like, musically on top, but let's face it, Professor, you also delve into politics and gender. Well, I mean, I think that um, this is somewhat last generational gas. Although, you know, the alt-right gives me worry that a new generation is taking this up. But, you know, I think overall... 
if I may, just real quick, I, I, my hope is that their voice is just amplified artificial. Right. That they're a very small minority who um, uh, is able to get a lot of attention. Yeah. Um, I think that America is what, you know, it's going to be, it's going to become majority minority still. Um, yeah, there's no, there's no stopping. That. We're not going to change the tide of immigration. We're not going to change the tide of intermarriage. You know, kids today are like looking at socialism. Kids today have a di very different understanding of climate control. Of, I mean, of climate change. And, you know, feminism is cool. <laughs> kids today. Well, well, kids in the 60s had a lot of great ideals, too, but they didn't follow through politically. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I feel like kids today, this is just they're, they're just grown up. They're just growing up um, accepting that racism is wrong. Yeah. And, and again, let me remind the audience, you are a professor, associate professor at Loyola Marymount. You are dealing with these, these right. folks every day. Right. And, you know, you're, say, you're, you're you have firsthand knowledge. And, you know, and LMU, you know, it's a Catholic university. Um, so, I, I mean, we do, I think we're overall progressive or Jesuit, you know, um, which is a particular form of Catholicism. Uh, but we are, we're, it's a religious university. So it's not like, I mean, a, you know, a lot of what's happening with the conservatism in this country is just to be against colleges, to be against universities. Education which, in general. To be against, which is just <laughs> so frightening to me. It's like, oh, my gosh, people just want to be serfs again. Um, <laughs> you know, there are a, a certain segment of the population that prefers a black and white world, which we know uh, if you have any form of education does not exist. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, there are mythologies that are put in place to make the world appear that way. Um, and those people tend to gravitate towards those mythologies. You know, let's face it, we're also dealing in a, you know, an interconnected world, which is radically changing how the world runs, not unlike we did with the Industrial Revolution here 150 years ago. And so, yeah, to your point, um, those children that are educated are going to live in one world, and those that aren't will not. Yeah, I, that really worries me. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, we're supposed to be moving towards a system where we just go in college and getting more educated, and you know, that's that's the way to stamp out having an underclass. Now, I understand that <laughs> the barons of our universe want an underclass because. It's a slave class, right? Well, I, I might put it that in all instances, once you begin to educate a sliver or a segment or even a whole of the of a population, they begin making demands. Right. Absolutely. And if you have an uneducated populace, then they just kind of shrug their shoulders, put their head down and go, I guess it's just the way it is. Right. And education doesn't necessarily have to come uh, from a well-known system today. I mean, you know, um, what I do see, and to take this in a more positive direction, because I think we both dove, dove off the cliff here, right. uh, is that, uh, you know, uh, you know, these kids are, are walking around with the uh, entire encyclopedia of human knowledge in their hands, regardless of your uh, official or right. education. Right, right. Except we also know now how easily a lot of that. It is, is to be manipulated. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. And, and also information is not the same thing as knowledge or not the same thing as wisdom. Yes. And, and that's sometimes what people are not getting. 
will that affect the music for the next generation? Well, I do worry about there not being the sort of splinterization. That, fragmentation. Yeah. yeah, the fragmentation. The you know the loss of water cooler culture of, of shared conversations and that we're all in our little silos and we find our little affinity groups online and we're not all listening to the same top 40. Well, we don't live in a monoculture anymore. We and, don't. So, I mean, and so that's a good thing. And we, and we live in a global environment, mm -hmm. you know, and like most things, there's, there's, there's a double-edged sword. Uh, there is good and bad in all. Um, you know, you hope that we progress with forward momentum, but as a student of history, uh, that's not always the case. Right. And I don't know that I want the monoculture of the, my, of the king of pop. Right. <laughs> right. You know, to go back to our the start of this conversation, you know, I don't know that we want that kind of over-idolatrization. Maybe we can have multiple streams that become popular. I just hope that we're listening to each other's music, you know, and then that, and that's why it disturbs me when I see that the top downloading artists of 2018 are almost all male. Yeah. Because that's ultimately what it has to come down to. You have to listen, you, you have to want to pay attention to a culture that is not yours, that or an identity that is not yours. You know? Well, you, you, that starts with a curious mind, uh, and not everybody is born with that uh, or has that instilled in them uh, uh, from their parents. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, to your point, uh, you know, yeah, sampling is uh, is great. And I, I don't mean the, the, the technology of sampling. I mean the, the actual go out and, and sample, uh, you know, um, the choices are there. It, it is available and it's easier to achieve today than ever before. Um, people just need to, uh, to engage. Yeah, I agree. Well, I don't want to end this on a bummer. <laughs> so let's talk about well, one last conversation uh, about another one of your books, Mama Rama, The Memoir of Sex, Kids, and Rock and Roll. And I understand you are a rock and roll mother. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I guess. I mean, just by, by nature, because I'm a rock and roll everything, uh, I am not one of those moms who is like, trying to make my son listen to my music. The, like the Beatles or uh, the Michael Jackson. Or yeah. Like At a younger age that worked, maybe. Uh, How old are your kids? Started out. Uh, so my stepdaughters are in their 20s. Um, actually, uh, the older one is almost 30. Um, and my son is 16. Well, he's right in the middle of determining his music. Right oh, now. yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and, and the worst thing I can do is like recommend something to him. <laughs> yeah, otherwise, you're going to get all Swedish death metal. Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, it's pretty much all like SoundCloud hip hop right now. Uh, you know, he's definitely like choosing the music that's going to push my buttons uh, li <laughs> lyrically because I'm pretty open to musical styles. But um, lyrically, he's definitely... <laughs> Uh, trying to... yeah, there's, 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 there's not a lot of subtlety in uh, most uh, uh, hip hop uh, uh, lyrics these days. Yeah. And, you know, we actually um, have interesting conversations around extentacion, the uh, ex extension. Yes. Extension, yeah. Uh, so yeah. Um, I would say wrong, but uh, who, you know, he loves and um, and actually who I, whose music I think is actually really, really great. Uh, 
Yeah, this was the kid that was assassinated. Right? Yeah, yeah, who was shot. Yeah, but yeah. you know who also was you know uh, arrested for like punching his girlfriend, pregnant girlfriend in the stomach. You know, so yeah. very complicated. Not the greatest um, role model. No, but you know, um, but the music is actually really, really good and very complex. And I think he's probably, um, you know, I think cancellation culture has maybe overly um, written him out, and there's a a generational gap there. So, you know, I do try to listen to some of, some of, you know, some of what he listens to, I really like, but some of it, the attitudes towards women are like the worst. (laughs) They're just the worst. It's like. Very misogynistic. Yeah, no, it's horrible. It's horrible objectification. Um, Well, I have a a, a 19 year old um, who goes to a Catholic university as well, uh, University of Portland. And um, we went through that, and uh, let's say he's mellowed with age. Good. I, yeah, I know it's a phase, and I know that if I push back, it's just going to make it worse. So Yeah, Swedish I, death metal, I'm telling you. So. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, we, we do every now and then try to appreciate each other's music. So being a, a mama rama is not an easy job. No, no, <laughs> no, and and you know and 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 because uh, you know mothers like represent the thing that we rebel against, right? And they represent this the person who tells you no. And I don't want to be the person who says no. Like that, I'm you know the kind of feminism that I embrace is you know what they call pro pleasure feminism, right? It's it's the feminism of of saying yes. Mm. But as a mom, you got to say no. <laughs> right. <laughs> yes. It's a contradiction. There's a dichotomy going on there. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, oh, all right. So what's next for you, Evelyn? Um, I'm editing a series of books called the Music Matters series, which are short books on single artists, kind of deep dives into um, favorite subjects. And so it's, you know, why the Ramones matter, why the Beach Boys matter, why Karen Carpenter matters, why Rage Against the Machine matters. And uh, it's for University of Texas Press. Uh, so I'm basically, I mean, I'm basically doing A&R for them. I'm finding titles and writers and bringing them to the series. So that's sort of my alternative Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. <laughs> oh, you're making the alternative Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Okay. There's a few alternative Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. You hear that, Young Warner? You got competition. Um, so I'm editing uh, that series. And I think the next thing, I'm going to write a book, not edit a book. Um, but I haven't decided. Maybe it's going to be one of these books. I haven't decided yet. All right. All right. Well, Evelyn McDonald, thank you so much for being on Deeper Digs and Rock today. Thank you so much for having me. It was really, really fun. Let's hear it for Professor McDonald. I'm so glad 
we are able to expand the rock and roll canon. Uh, her work is essential. In fact, what we are trying to do around here is you know, kind of a bachelor's course, but people like Evelyn are really the master's class. Please go out and read all of her books, and if you are really up to it, uh, keep an eye on the professor for higher education. Uh, best place would be to check out the faculty page at Loyola Marymount University. And that leads me to the takeaway this week. Um, that is our love of talking to these academics that elevate uh, this music that we all love uh, to the art form uh, it should be considered in. It is high art because it is a record of the times. It affected the culture and vice versa for a very long time, for 50 years at least. It went global. The further we get away from the actual age of rock and roll, the latter half of the 20th century, we'll be informing academics for generations um, who will be trying to understand the full story. People like Professor McDonald or Professor Yaffe or Professor Hughes, who we've also had time to talk with, uh, are important figures uh, in this quest. I, for one, can't wait to dig deeper with other academics in the near future, and I hope you all agree. Okay, until next week, uh, where we will hear from a real legend in the rock and roll story. Danny Goldberg will be joining us, a man uh, that could fill up several episodes with his uh, history in music. But we will mostly focus on his current book, Serving the Servant, Remembering Kurt Cobain, where Danny puts pen to paper on his experiencing managing Nirvana just before their rise to superstardom and until the horrible tragedy of Cobain's death. You'll want to come back for that. Hey, everybody. Remember, keep up the rockin'. the wrongs of social injustice? Oxfam America works with people in more than 90 countries to save lives, develop long-term solutions to poverty, and campaign for social change. And we do it with the help of our friends in the music world. The Beatles were Oxfam supporters back in the day. So were the Stones. And through the years, musicians and music fans have helped Oxfam push hard to work for a just world without poverty. Folks like Radiohead, Coldplay, Pearl Jam, DJ Shadow, and many, many more have encouraged their fans to join the effort. You can too. Go to OxfamAmerica.org to learn how you can help. Deeper Digs in Rock, produced and hosted by Kristen Swain. All sound design and incidental music by Busy Signal Studios. 
Find all of our shows, notes, social, and links at www.pantheonpodcast.com or wherever you listen to great podcasts. All songs can be found for purchase on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. Please purchase these great and important tracks. Find us on Facebook at the RNRAP. We are on Instagram at RNR Archaeology. Tweet us at RNR Archaeology. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.